0: Welcome to the Faith and Family podcast. I'm Cameron Cole, and I'm the director of Children, Youth, and Family at the Church of the Advent. And historically, uh, Faith and Family has been a Sunday school class um, that meets at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and it is one of my favorite parts of my job and my ministry at the Advent. um, is is that class. Uh, We have lots of really good speakers and voices. Lots of um, older parents who have wisdom, who you know really help younger parents like myself. We'll have counselors come in. We'll have youth pastors come in and talk to parents about, uh, about you know, young people and their context and understanding how to spiritually connect with them. And so, because of COVID, we obviously cannot have that Sunday school class like we normally do, but we want to continue that part of our ministry because you know we believe that it is. A vital responsibility of the church to do everything we can to educate, equip, and encourage parents to spiritually invest in their kids. And, you know, I I think that uh, also, you know, the discipleship of children is a partnership. It's a partnership between the church and the family. And so, certainly, the church, we have a role in terms of teaching kids the gospel and God's word and teaching them. About faithfully worshiping and serving uh, our Lord God. Um, and uh, we also have a responsibility to help parents do that at home. And so that's the purpose here of the Faith and Family Podcast is to, to help equip, encourage, and educate parents on how to spiritually invest in their kids. And so that's what we're going to be doing um, during this year with the Faith and Family Podcast. And so um, today, I'm going to start a series, uh, it's really just going to be two weeks, uh, about the, um, about a gospel catechism. Um, and so basically, uh, we're going to focus on how it is that we use a gospel catechism to help our kids understand um, and internalize and own and savor the good news of God's grace for sinners through Jesus Christ that we call the gospel. And so just to kind of uh, introduce this real quickly, there's a um, gospel catechism that, that I developed uh, about 10 years ago that I've adapted, but um, I've used it in, in youth groups, small groups, and I've been using it with my own children, uh, goodness, now for uh, about 10 years. <laughs> and so I'm just going to first just tell you what the gospel catechism is. Now, you might be totally unfamiliar with what you know the term catechism is. Catechism is a is a way um, that the church uh, historically, throughout all of church history, um, and and all the different denominational sectors, whether that's the the Greek Orthodox or the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the, all of these different um, streams of Christianity have um, have had. Used catechism as a means to um, educate children and new converts to Christianity about the faith, and so a catechism is generally um, generally is a summary of some of the basic and foundational beliefs of the faith, and uh, and it usually involves a question and answer format, and so this gospel catechism is something. Um, that we really, really want parents to, um, to teach their kids and to do at home with their kids. It's helpful for parents too, but it's particularly helpful for parents because there is, if nothing else, we want all of the kids in our church to know the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. And so before I get into the details and some of the explanation of where this came from and why it's important, some of the history of catechism and some of the practical applications, I just want to tell you what the gospel catechism does. So here are the questions. So what does gospel mean? The answer is good news. What, does, what is the good news of Jesus? Good. The answer is Jesus died for my sins. Question, why did Jesus die for your sins? Answer. So I can have a relationship with God. Question, who loves you the most? Answer. God. <laughs> Question, who loves you the second most? Answer, mommy and daddy. <laughs> And then finally, question: What can you do by God's power and grace? Answer: Hard things. So that's the gospel catechism that I am talking about. And so I want to tell you first the story of where this gospel catechism came from. Um, there, there, there's a story, and then there's also a statistic. And first, the story. Um, my uh, early in my youth ministry career, uh, this you know starting back in 2005. So I'm in my 16th year. Uh, school year of youth ministry. We, um, I had a, a Bible study and, it, and, and uh, I um, was with that Bible study for uh, a number of years and I can remember the last time we met and it was kind of, it was really a sweet moment because it's the first time I'd had like a long season of investment with um, one group of guys and we just like really loved each other. We still do uh, there was just like a really great bond that we had together, and we ate—God only knows how many uh, how many grams of saturated fat and sausage biscuits and Chick Fil A <laughs> uh, biscuits. But the last session came, and I was like, you know, feeling so good. You know, we had taught the Book of Romans, we had taught, we'd gone through the Gospel of John, we had. Um, done some of the minor prophets. We had uh, done apologetics and different things to getting them ready for college. And so here we are, our last, uh, our last meeting. And I said, you know, guys, tell me what is the gospel. And it was crickets. It was dead silence. <laughs> none of them, um, none of them had an answer. Now, when I started to prod a little bit more. They knew what the gospel was. They knew that God, God, and Jesus had died for their sins. They knew God loved them unconditionally through the grace of Christ. They knew those things. They knew that it, there's nothing that they could do to make God stop loving them if they had, you know, put their faith in Christ. They knew that, and um, and at the same time, like they they could not quickly answer um, the question. And so they had their, their ability to articulate the gospel was, um, you know, was lacking. And so that was very disturbing to me that I had spent however many years with this one group of students. And they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do something that fundamental. Um, and and so you know, that was my fault. Uh, that was a failure on my end. So I thought, how, you know, golly dog, if there's one thing we're going to get done in this church and in this ministry is we're going to, to teach kids, have kids be able to articulate the gospel, whether they believe it or not, they're at least going to know the overarching message of Christianity is God's love for sinners through Christ. And so, um, and so with that being said, I just on my own that well, sorry, before I get into it, before I get into that, a second factor of why I developed this is um, in 2014, um, I was reading an article by really well-respected scholar named uh, Kira Powell, who is the founder and executive director of Fuller, the, the Fuller Youth Institute. And so Kira is, um, is a brilliant woman and a very faithful Christian. And I've had the, the good fortune to, to have uh, a couple of conversations with her and some correspondence with her. But she, um, she wrote the book with a man named Chap Clark, who's also a fantastic youth ministry scholar, called Sticky Faith. And Kara is crazy smart. She went to Stanford. She has a PhD. Um, and Kira uh, studies, both at a theological level and a sociological level, um, what are things that lead kids to stick with Christ, to stick with Christ and to stick with the church. What are the factors and variables that lead to lasting faith in Christ? And so she was asked in a 2014 interview with, uh, with Christianity Today, you know, Kara, if you were going to identify the most significant factor, what would you say it is? And she said, well, you know, it's hard to distill years of research down to one factor, but if I had to isolate one thing, I would say that it is a kid's understanding of an ability to articulate the gospel, to understand Christianity in terms of grace uh, rather than law and good behavior. And so that was extremely eye-opening to me that, wow, Seems like the most important factor in whether our kid is going to stick or not is their understanding of the gospel of grace, um, which is totally in line with um, the ethos of our church and our ministry in terms of being like gospel-centered and grace-driven. And so, um, so I and, and I will say too, in the book *Sticky Faith*, um, Kara and Chap Clark they write about. Um, there's a there's a chapter called Sticky Gospel. And one of the things that, um, uh, two of the things that they write about in that chapter, are one, they talk about how if kids don't understand Christianity in terms of grace, like they're going to have a moral failure along the way. They're going to have um, a season where they're spiritually dry or where they question whether God is good and whether God loves them and is for them. And in those seasons, they absolutely have to know the gospel they have to understand that in their failure they are loved and accepted by the lord through the life death and resurrection of jesus you know when they have something bad happen to them and they question the goodness of god and whether he's for them they have to be able to look to the cross and so you know both this story of the the students i'd invested in who weren't able to articulate the gospel and um the empirical research that uh that dr powell and um believe dr clark (laughs) i think chap clark has a phd um but regardless uh but based on their research too of how important it is for them in the gospel i was like okay look i gotta have a mechanism whereby i can uh help kids articulate the gospel so i developed the gospel catechism and so with the gospel catechism what um it's something that we do at the beginning of every bible study I'll ask the guys, guys, what does gospel mean? Good news. And they'll answer good news. And I'll say, what's the good news? And they'll say, usually Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> and they'll say, why did he die for your sins? So that you can have what? And they'll say, a relationship with God. And that's where I end it there. And then the last three questions about who loves you the most, who loves you the second most, what can you do by God's power and grace? I don't do that with the students, um, with my students. That's more something I do with my kids. And we'll talk about that later. That's more from a parent to a child uh, level of the catechism. But I started doing that so that come heck or high water, no matter what, if a child was involved in our youth ministry and coming up in our church, they were going to be able to articulate the gospel because they had been catechized and drilled on it probably over a hundred times at least. Um, in their lifespan with our ministry, and so um, and so, I I do this with my own children every time I drop them off at school. So my kids are getting drilled on this five times a week, and they really kind of enjoy it. You know, kids kind of like routine. But I'll get into the practical of it later. But the first thing, the first thing I want to address—that's kind of our introduction. Uh, the first thing I want to go into now is just to get into the fundamentals of why it is so critical that your child um, understands and knows the gospel. And here is something that you need to hear from me. This is something that you, you, that is really important for all of us parents to own. And that is we tend to think um, in terms of our kids' problems and threats to our children, we tend to look to the outside. We think, oh goodness, like social media, that is the biggest threat to my child. Or, What's going, you know, what's on the television, that's the threat. Or what's going on in politics or what they're being taught at school or whatever. We tend to think that the biggest threat to our child is outside of them. We tend to think that our child's biggest problem is in their circumstances and outside in the world around them. Well, here's the deal. The biggest problem for your child and the biggest problem for you and me is our own sin. It is our own sin that it is an internal problem, and you bet there are definitely threats, there are definitely um, problems out in the world. But you know, Paul David Tripp says you'll never be free until you understand that your biggest problem is your own sin, and your only hope is God's grace through Jesus. And so, with that being said you know, we do need to concern ourselves with external threats. And we also, we need to put more attention into the internal threat, which is your child's own sin. And so with that being said, it's going to be very important for us to understand the nature of your child's sin, uh, because the gospel is the antidote to your child's biggest problem. Um, Not just in terms of their eternal salvation, but in terms of their everyday life, you know, their m- maturation and their sanctification as a person and as a Christian, the basic gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be the single most helpful antidote to your child's biggest problem, their own sin. And so to to take a, to understand the, the fundamental nature of your child's sin and our own sin, we go back to the garden and uh, to Genesis chapter 3. And if you've been around me long enough, you know that you know this is pretty central to my philosophy of ministry is looking at Genesis three because this is where sin begins, and this is kind of where we see sin at its most fundamental levels. And the principles that we see in Genesis chapter three, um, they're gonna you know cycle and repeat themselves a thousand times throughout Scripture, and a thousand times a day in my own sin life, right? <laughs> so with that being said. Uh, let's uh, take, a, just take a pause there as I take a sip of Diet Coke. Um, gotta have your Diet Coke every morning, right? But anyhow, um, Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And so uh, just starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than, the, than any, uh, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate so there you have it the word of the lord and so what you're going to see here you know in terms of the structure of this you know this segment of genesis 3 that i've pulled out is uh, you have in the last verse verse 6 uh, sin occurring at a behavioral level. Um, Eve uh, you know with Adam's partnership, uh, they eat the fruit. they sin at the behavioral level. okay that's the deed, that's the action. But um, before that, the there are there are lies, there are false beliefs that the serpent, Tells Adam and Eve they believe those false things, they embrace those, and it is at the heart level, at those beliefs, that they that leads to the action of eating from the tree. And so, you know, I, I like to talk about how you can break down sin, you know, kind of into three levels if we're talking, to, you know, as individuals. So, the, there's sin at the relational level, sin at the relational level is basically. The result, uh, you know, the result of the belief and the behavior, sin creates separation. So when we talk about sin at the relational level, that means separation from God. All right, so then we have sin at the uh, behavioral level, and that's violation of God's law. So, you know, if you steal, if you lie, if you lust, if you envy, those actions, that's sin at the behavioral level. And that tends to be, you know, where people prim- what people primarily associate with the word sin. Then, when we get down to the theological level, that's sin at the heart level, at the belief level. And so, what's going on here is there's sin at the behavioral level. Sorry, there's sin at the theological level precedes sin at the behavioral level. What Adam and Eve believe from the serpent, the lies that they believe, um, leads to the behavior. And so in sum, before I kind of get into these three false beliefs that we see in Genesis 3, that that the the serpent peddles to Adam and Eve, is basically sin at the the theological level is the belief that we can be our own Savior and our own Lord. We believe, you know, the problem we have um, that we kind of feel inside, that problem is sin, um, that we can handle that on our own. We can justify ourselves. We can be good enough people, or religious enough people, or tolerant enough people, or um, moral enough people, or whatever, to be okay, to be considered a good person. And so that is that's sin. That's that's believing that you can be your own savior. Only God can save us from sin. Only only Jesus can save us from our sin through His grace and mercy. Then when I said you know believing that Jesus that you can be your own savior and your own Lord. Well, at the Lord part, that means that we can kind of be the God of our own life. You know, we're self-sufficient. We don't need to trust in God. You know, we can kind of do life on our own. Um, We can kind of make our own terms. We can depend on ourselves. And, you know, that's what the world, that's what the Lord, you know, the kind of the primary virtue that the world upholds is independence. You know, like, um, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be an independent person and uh, you know, be an individual and be true to yourself. You know, this is all. This is all affirming um, the theological, the, the theological theological sin at the theological level. You know that you can be your own God. Um, and so, anyhow, you're going to see that. You know, here in Genesis 3. And so, first, you know, the first lie. Um, there, there are kind of three lies that undergird that belief that we can be our own Savior and our own Lord at the theological level. First lie. Is that the serpent says? Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of any tree in the garden"? And so the first thing that he goes after is what God has revealed. You know, in Genesis chapter two, uh, God says very clearly to Adam and Eve, "Don't eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It'll kill you. You know, you'll die. Don't touch it." And um, and so God has revealed His character. He's revealed. His will to Adam and Eve in a very clear way. Um, and the serpent uh, says, no, you cannot trust God's word. You cannot trust what God has revealed. And so, you know, and, and for us in our time, you know, a attack the attack of the devil, the attack of uh, the spiritual force of evil is to tell us, you cannot trust the Bible. Um, God has not revealed himself sufficiently in the person of Jesus Christ or in the Bible. And so, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, you, you they're just all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues, and you can't trust that. That is the first lie that the devil tells, that you know, to 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 basically subvert our relationship with God and to lead us away from the Lord, to lead us into self destruction. All right, second lie, um, he says. He says, you know, basically, uh, basically to Adam and Eve, he says, look, you're not going to die. You're not going to die if you eat that. And so what he's saying there is he's telling a lie about the character of God. He's saying you cannot trust him. He's not good. Um, You know, yeah, he he told you you shouldn't eat from that, but he's holding out on you. And so the second lie, you know, we said the first is you can't trust what God has revealed. You can't trust God's word. The second lie is you can't trust God himself because he is not a good guy. He is not on your side and he's not honest. And so you can't trust him. And then finally, you know, the last lie he says comes from this ever so devious statement. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. Um, And so, you know, when God said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, you know, yes, there was a behavioral level of that he was saying literally, "Do not eat the fruit." <laughs> that was that was literal, but there is also something, um, something uh, figurative and theological and metaphorical there too. He was saying more at a theological level: "Don't eat from that tree, or don't fall into the mentality that you can be like me. You cannot be God. Like you were made to live in a relationship where." you receive from me where you depend on me you rely on me god does not have need god has what you call aseity that that means that he in and of himself has everything he needs he is autonomous he is without need he doesn't need anything from the outside but we are the opposite of that we are made with need right we depend on outside things to nourish us and to to guide us and you know and to 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 sustain us and God is that is the primary is the central outside thing that we rely on. We were made to, to need. And so when he said don't eat from the tree, part of what he's saying is you don't fall into this belief that you are autonomous and that you have a sayity and that you are without need. Like you were made to depend on me. And so when Adam and Eve believe these three things that you can't trust God's word, you cannot trust um, God as a person, he's not trustworthy, and that you can be like God. The three of those things together lead to the behavior. And so, you know, whatever your child's sin is, uh, whether, you know, this, this kind of the overt sin struggle that you see with them, that they have a bad temper or that they have, um, you know, that they use profanity or that they're stealing from their sibling or that they're mean. Well, that's the behavior, but below that is the belief that are the three lies, um, particularly that you can't trust God and that that you can't, you know, you can't, you're not God yourself. And so the gospel is the antidote, especially the gospel as seen in the cross, because the gospel, you know, in terms of, in terms of, you know, what God has revealed, that first lie gospel says, hey, God has revealed himself. Like he's made himself clear to us in the person of Jesus Christ and, you know, his death and resurrection. Like we can see very clearly who God is. He, It's not like God is in this mysterious realm that we can't get to. And we have no idea who he is or what he expects of us or what our relationship is meant to be like. Do we know everything about God? Certainly not. No. But boy, we certainly know enough um, to know basically that he's trustworthy." that He wants a relationship with us, that it's in our best interest to live in relationship with us and or to live in relationship with Him and to to live subordinate to His Word. We know that through the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ and through the Bible. So the second thing that the gospel, that the gospel particularly as seen through the cross tells us is that God is good. Like He is trustworthy. You know, He's so holy that He would punish all the sins of His people on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, He's... So loving and merciful that he would send his son to die on a cross for our sins, that he would put our salvation above his own son, and so that certainly, gosh, if there's anything that tells us that God is good and trustworthy, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel reminds us of that. And then um, finally, finally, the um, the gospel tells us that we have, you know, we have a big problem with our sin. Um, it is not a Band-Aid kind of problem. It is not um, a quick fix kind of issue. It, our problem with sin is so grave. Um, our, our need our, uh, is so great that only God could solve the problem. Only God could come down to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross to fix our sin problem. We cannot be like God. We cannot save ourselves. We are entirely... Dependent and reliant on his rescue and his grace. And so when we know and believe the gospel, it takes us back to this place of okay, God has revealed himself to me in a trustworthy way. Uh, God is a good, good person. He loves me so much, I can trust him. And I am not God. I can't be my own savior. I can't be my own Lord. I was made to depend on him. And so it takes us back to that. And when we live, under the truth of the gospel, then we live a life where we depend upon Jesus. And when we live a life where we're depending upon Jesus, that transforms us. That, you know, that is going to make us into people who are more like Jesus by depending on Jesus. And so that's what we want for our kids. That's what we want for our kids is we want them to be people who are Christ-like, you know. We have, you know, all kinds of aspirations and dreams for our kid a lot of those are tied up in our own baggage and our own idolatry um I know it too well myself um but you know at the end of the day like no matter what our kid does for a living or how successful our kid is in school or how good an athlete they are or how financially secure they are, you know above all we want our kids to live lives like Jesus Christ we want them to be um, you know winsome witnesses of the of the you know glorious character of God. And so, um, and so. With that being said, you know the biggest problem is your child's sin, and the great antidote is the gospel. And so that is that is that is why this gospel catechism is so key. And so, you know, catechism, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but you know, the reason um, the reason we use. I, I kind of wrote this in a catechism form, is because it's a really effective way of teaching. Um, and of teaching, and so you know, in, in terms of um, in terms of like pedagogy, or you know, that's just a fancy, fancy term for like a philosophy of education. You know, um, when you're taking a test, like a multiple choice test, um, you call that recognition. Like you can recognize the right answer, um, and you know, generally you don't have to have very deep understanding to do well on a multiple choice test. Like when I was a student, and I'm sure the th- same is true for you. When I saw that it was going to be multiple choice, I was like, "Okay, good." I didn't study very hard, or I don't really know this very well, but it's multiple choice. I can kind of figure out what the most reasonable answer is. But if the teacher put out, you know, an answer where it was, or a test where it was short answer, or fill in the blank, where you had to retrieve the information, and then we call that retrieval. Well, boy, you had to have studied. Uh, t- you had to really understand and know it. To, to succeed on something that's retrieval. And so a catechism is a, a retrieval-based um, type of, of learning, um, where you have to supply the answer. There's no multiple choice. And so um, and so that's, you know, at just a purely educational level why I did it there. But, you know, epic, uh, I'm sorry, um, catechism is just kind of a tried and true way that throughout church history, people have um, taught the basic truths of Christianity. And so on one end, um, you know, in the early church, they would take the basic doctrines and they would, you know, distill them into a summary form. Um, and then they, they would, um, the, you know, and so usually what would happen is, is new converts or children, before they could take communion and before they were confirmed, like, you know, they, they were confirmed professing Christians, they had to memorize the catechism. And so, um, you know, and usually what they had to memorize was the Ten Commandments, the uh, Apostles' Creed, and, um, uh, and the Lord's Prayer. And then they had to, had to memorize some things about the sacraments. And so it was, honestly, it was in the Reformation with Martin Luther where he popularized the, the question and answer format because he, he felt like rote memorization was not as effective as uh, people having to give an answer. Um, and so you may, you may be familiar with this term, Socratic method, uh, Socratic method, it, you know it's, it's kind of proven to be um, a, you know a, a more effective or a pretty highly effective way of teaching. You ask kids questions and they answer and and, and and so just at the cognitive level it's a more effective way of teaching. And so with that being said, in Martin Luther's 1529 small catechism, he focused on um, he had this question and answer form. And he had questions about the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. And so, in you know the Anglican context, where you know at the Church of the Advent where we dwell, the Book of Common Prayer um, historically has had a catechism in the back for the Lord's Prayer, for the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, and some questions about sacraments, so that so that kids and new converts to Christianity can prepare for Confirmation before a bishop. And so, the basic point is a catechism form of question and answer is just an effective way. For a child to know and understand the basic tenets of the gospel, and so I'm going to now to land the plane here. We're 30 minutes in, and so I'm sorry this has been kind of long, but um, I'm going to just look at the the questions and answers in the gospel catechism, so that you understand, you know, why um, why you know why these are the questions and answers that I developed in this, you know, in these these six components of the gospel catechism that we used in our church and that um, we use in our family. And so first the question is, what does gospel mean? And the answer is good news. The reason I have this first is because the term gospel is thrown around. It's overused without being defined. And that is very alienating. Um, that's very alienating to people. And it's also very dangerous because we throw around terms and we don't actually know what they mean. I can remember Somebody, um, somebody was uh, opposing something related to um, something related to, you know, kind of like the decorations in the church, and they said, "Well, we've gotten away from we're you know we're getting away from the gospel if we do that." Well, look, the decorations in the church have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. Um, You know, this 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 person um, didn't you know clearly didn't understand what the gospel was because they were equating. Uh, decorations with the good news of Jesus's death for sinners um, and so um, so with that being said we want to be clear on what gospel means and on top of that you know we also want kids to know that the gospel is good news it's the best news in fact um, that it's positive so when we say what does gospel mean they say good news they're defining it they know what gospel means and they're also are starting with this positive association with the gospel all right so second question is what what is the good news of Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus died for my sins. Now, so this is the the basic gospel in terms of what Jesus has done. Um, You know, the the gospel event is Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. Uh, And so in this, you can see that first, you know, the gospel is inextricably connected with Jesus. Jesus died for my sins. Then it's inextricably connected to uh, the cross; that's where He died. Um, it is connected to His grace because He, in His love, He's dying for me, um, and and so you know we're we're pointing them to the love and the grace part of the gospel. And then finally, you know, it's not a real gospel if we don't talk about the bad news, which is our sin. Uh, and and you know this also connects us back to uh, what we said about, you know, we need to know that we're sinners who need God and need his grace. So anyhow, that's the second question. What, you know, what's the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus died for my sins. All right, so then the next question is, why did Jesus die for your sins? And the answer is, so I can have a relationship with God now and forever. Now, this is really important. And the reason it's really important is because uh, a lot of times with the gospel, people are clear on what they have been saved from. They have been saved from death or saved from separation from God or saved from hell. And that's, good, that's good. That's a part of it. We want to know that. We want to celebrate that. Praise God. Those are good things. And we also need to know what we have been saved to. You know, we have been saved into a relationship with God. Um, we have been saved into eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And so, um, you know, if we only understand the gospel in transactional terms uh, of Jesus died for my sins, I put my faith in him and now I'm going to heaven. Well, and we don't understand the relational part, the Christian life is not going to make a whole lot of sense because the entire Christian life is lived in the context of being in a relationship with God. And so that's why I have this question, you know, why did He die for your sins so I can have a relationship with God now, here in this life, and forever? And the now and forever part is important because a lot of times kids think that Jesus died for my sins so that I'll go to heaven. And boy, that's a big one. And I'm thankful for that. That's that's the A-list problem there. But also too, the gospel is for me now. The gospel is the central catalyst in the Christian life. And so remembering the gospel every day is so important for me, for my relationship today with God. And so that's, that's what's below that. And so these are the three questions we ask at Bible study um, and, you know, and when we gather for Sunday school just to kind of remind kids of the basic gospel. So now the, the final three questions relate more to what, um, to, you know, to what we recommend that parents do with their kids as well. We recommend that parents do the first three with their kids, but we, you know, these last three are particularly for the parents as well. So the, the, the next question, question number four is, who loves you the most? And the answer is God. Um, now, this, and then the, uh, this kind of goes along with question five, and I'll just go ahead and read that one. Question is, who loves you the second most? Mommy and daddy, all right? So this might seem a little bit peculiar, but here's the thing I want to communicate is you want your child's primary expectation for love um, to be directed towards God, not you. You know, um, I can, you know, I can, with all my children from the time they were babies and I would, you know, rock them at night. Oh, love to rock a baby. Sad to be out of the rock and the baby fit or to be moving out of the rock and the baby phase. But, um, you know, and I would put them in bed. I would say, Oh, daddy loves you so much, but don't forget who loves you the most, Jesus. And, uh, yeah, because here's the thing. A lot of people, they, equate the way that their parents treat them and the way their parents love them with the way that God treats them and God loves them. And boy, oh boy, I know as a rotten sinner of a parent, I do not want my kids to in any way equate my love for them with God's love for them because I do a sorry, sorry job, especially compared to God. And so I want them to know That the standard of of love, that the love that they need is God's love. I want them to look for God, to God for that need. And yeah, I love them. Why did who loves you the second most? Mommy and Daddy, like I do love them. But boy, not like Jesus. And so this is a way of pointing my to my kids towards God um, as their, their ultimate heavenly heavenly parent. And, you know, and also for them to kind of understand like mommy and daddy are not on the same plane as God. Mommy and daddy are sinners and it kind of protects you from, you know, some of the risk of hypocrisy. Um, Last question, what can you do by God's power and grace? Hard things. Um, This is, this, I I love this question and there are a couple of reasons why. (laughs) One is we're being realistic with our kids every day that life is hard that they're going to they're gonna face challenges. They're going to face challenges every day they go to school. They're going to face challenges every time they go play with the kids in the neighborhood. They're going to face challenges around the house and dealing with their siblings or dealing with their parents uh, or just dealing with life in general. And so we're being, we're being honest every day and be like, hey, you're going to encounter hard things. And the way that we deal with the challenges of life is by trusting in God's power and grace. That's how we do it. What can you do by God's power and grace I can do hard things by God's power and grace. That is that is what I rely on. That's my mechanism. And so that is the gospel catechism. And so, you know, how does this play out in real life? I want to recommend to you that you just find a way uh, to incorporate this into your daily routine. For some families, that might be when you put your kids to bed at night. Uh, for some families, it may be, for us, we do it in corporal line. When we get to the carpool line at Brookwood Forest, we're starting to go up the hill and there are you know, 20 cars in front of us, my kids know we're going to do the gospel catechism. In fact, they'll ask for it a lot of times. But I'll say, you know, I'll just start out, what does the gospel mean? And they'll say it in unison, good news. We do it every single day. And so the last thing I, you that know, my kids are getting out of the car and the last thing they have heard from me, the last things that they themselves have proclaimed and pronounced is that there is good news. That Jesus has died for their sins, that they are, they've been saved into a relationship with God, that God loves them the best, and that the challenges they're gonna face in that day, that they can face them through the power and grace of God. And so, uh, you know, there is, you see it in scripture, you see it, you know, particularly in Deuteronomy 6, which is kind of one of these, you know, hallmark. Uh, touched in verses of, or chapters about uh, family discipleship or parents discipling their kids, there's a lot of value in routine. There's a lot of value in repetition. Um, and there's and, and repetition particularly of the gospel and of God's word. And so that's, that, that's going to be it today here for our, our first Faith and Family podcast, the Gospel Catechism. And so um, I will try to put up on the website, on the blog, um, a copy of the Gospel Catechism, um, and uh, we have it for children's ministry. We have it in every every one of the um, grade plans. Uh, we have we have the Gospel Catechism in that as well. But again, you know, let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll wrap it up. Holy God, we thank you for the good news that you love us in spite of our sin. And Father, uh, help us as parents to understand that our biggest problem is our sin today. And, we, um, and help us to turn to Jesus, to Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit um, to, uh, to overcome that problem of sin. Help us to live lives where we trust in you. We pray for our kids that they would internalize, know, and believe the good news, the grace of Jesus, uh, and that it would be definitive in their life. So we trust you with this, God. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, and appreciate you listening to this Faith and Family Podcast.